Hello and happy Father's Day. As we celebrate Dad's this day, we also look forward to the opportunity for another deep dive into the Gospel of John. I'm Colin, and we are again in chapter 6. In it, Jesus challenges the assembled crowd with some very hard statements, statements so difficult that many would turn away in confusion and stop following him altogether. But as we'll learn today, Jesus isn't afraid of our honest questions. In fact, Pastor Charles Burson tells us that genuine faith gives space for continual wrestling with God in order to understand more fully, in order to strengthen our belief. Be encouraged today as Pastor Char brings us this challenging message. So, Gospel of John, life in his name. So, John has given us the purpose of writing this gospel, and that purpose statement is found at the end of this book. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I say this every time I teach because I think it is so important to remember that this book is written for the church and is actually written for our continual recalibration to Jesus. The truth is that every single one of us have you know, let's just call it mission drift, right? We get distracted, we get pulled away, we lose faith, and we continually need to be reunited, reacquainted with Jesus. And John has written this book for the church that we might keep on believing and that we might, through our believing, continue to have life in the name of Jesus. And so every week that we gather around the teaching of this book, we are being offered once again to believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Every week we're invited to come and have an honest conversation with Jesus. Jesus, I don't feel your presence. Jesus, I don't feel or believe that I am experiencing life in your name. Will you meet me? Will you come? Will you walk with me? Will you be with me? I believe that that's what this book is intended to do. And it's interesting because that's really what this passage is about to some extent. It's our fourth time looking at the sixth chapter, and Jesus has just preached his most controversial sermon yet. He's just finished telling the multitude that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they will have deep, long-lasting life that they're looking and hungering for. Now we come to the point in the sermon where the people are going to respond to Jesus' message, and it's not good. The crowd is about to turn back from following Jesus for good. Whereas just the day before we, you know, this is weeks ago now for us, but the day before the crowds were considering, let's make Jesus our king. They were going to take him by force and make him king, which is actually probably the reason that Jesus gives this bread sermon, this controversial sermon. The crowd needed to know and understand who Jesus really is. He's not Moses. He's not just another prophet or another would-be king. He is the living bread that came down from heaven. 
and feeding on him, this metaphor for believing and trusting, means that you and I and anyone listening will experience deep, satisfying life. Well, now the crowd seems to understand, or maybe not totally understand, but they're completely put off and they want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, I believe Jesus' bread sermon is meant to do exactly what it did for this crowd. It was meant to draw a line in the sand. Jesus is no doubt pushing all those that are following him to make a decision about who he is and what they're going to do with Jesus. And certainly their response to this sermon is recorded by John to do the same for us. So it's kind of a weird place to jump in. We're just jumping in at the end And so we kind of miss some of the context of what has come before. But this is kind of the summary and, again, the response of the crowd to Jesus' sermon. It says, on hearing Jesus' bread sermon, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It's interesting to note that this is not just some motley crowd who is pushing back on Jesus' teaching. It's not the religious leaders necessarily who are pushing back on Jesus' teaching or being put off by the things he's saying and claiming, but it says it is specifically disciples who are responding in this way. Now, you have to understand that in this context, the disciple wasn't just casual. Um, A disciple would choose a rabbi And they would commit their life basically to following this rabbi around and following his teaching. So this is is a committed group of people. They are following Jesus where he goes. They are listening to his teaching. They are, you know, having him as their teacher, their rabbi. But now, Jesus has drawn a line in the sand, and it says, the people begin to grumble. Now, I find this fascinating to note that this same word grumbling was used when the people of Israel complained against God and Moses as they journeyed in the wilderness. John using the statement along with the bread and the water and the wilderness, this whole scene is clearly meant to be a retelling of the Exodus story and the wilderness wanderings. It's meant to remind us of the people of Israel who had followed Moses, who then complained at him. Just as the people now complain at and about Jesus, we should see these disciples in that same light and probably ourselves as well. You know, Paul the Apostle, remember in, I think it's in the, um, the epistles to the Corinthians, but he, or the letters to the Corinthians, he warns the church there. And he says, remember, it was the same people who came out of Egypt and saw all the miraculous signs. It was the same people who passed through the waters, ate the bread in the wilderness, who were also struck down and did not enter the promised land. There's a warning here, or there is an invitation to keep on 
believing, to keep on pressing in, to not be like those who were in the wilderness. And so we have this story as almost a retelling of the Exodus story. It's the same kind of scenario. It's no different now with us or with the people there in the wilderness with Jesus as it was with the children of Israel in the wilderness with Moses. God works, God shows up, we believe, but that is not enough. We need to keep on believing. We need to keep on pressing in. Now, we should see these disciples, as I said, in the same light as ourselves. Every group of followers of Jesus is a mixed bag. Even in this room today, we have glasses that are half full and glasses that are half empty. Now, Jesus responds with a question, as he often does. Does this offend you? I don't know. I I just hear a little bit of sarcasm here, right? Jesus knows that they're offended. Does this offend you? And it's a good question to ask. Why are they offended at Jesus' teaching? What is it about the sermon that has really put them off? So maybe it was Jesus' claim to be the incarnated son of God coming down from heaven. He references this multiple times. Perhaps it was the continual self-referencing as the I am, identifying himself with the one eternal God revealed in scripture and history. Maybe it was the continual invitations to eat his flesh and drink his blood that people found so off-putting. Imagine being among the crowd yourself and hearing these things. What would your reaction be, right? And especially if you hear all of them just piled one after another. It's not just that there's one confusing statement or one off-putting statement, but Jesus is literally stacking the deck. One key feature that stands out in Jesus' sermon to me is the uniqueness and exclusivity of his person. You can't miss it. According to Jesus in this sermon, there is no other hope for humanity's salvation and fulfillment except through him. Unless you believe, unless you eat my flesh, you will die in your sin. And that statement right there is off-putting when you're basically being told you are totally helpless, powerless, apart from someone else. Now, Jesus knows that the crowd is complaining. There are rumblings among them. And the wild thing is that rather than backing down on his claims, rather than having, you know, a little, okay, let's have a sidebar here. Like, let me give you a little bit of the nuance of what I've been saying. And let me explain just a little bit more so that you can understand. Jesus pushes the point even more. Jesus, what are you doing? He says, if you're offended by this, just wait, right? Just wait till you see the way in which I will ascend back into glory. Now, most commentators agree that Jesus here with this statement isn't just referring to his ascension alone. That yes, just as he came down from heaven, he also will ascend into heaven. But specifically, 
beginning to reference, and he does this many times in John, the pathway of his ascension, that this is what Jesus is referring to. This will be the great stumbling block for the Jews. Jesus is speaking of the cross, his own path to coronation and glorification. Now, as we follow the narrative in John, John has a very interesting way of viewing the cross, where the other writers of the gospel view the cross as a defeat and the resurrection is the victory of God, John sees the cross as the victory of God. Jesus is declared as the king of the Jews, that messianic figure that was prophesied in the Psalms and in the prophets. He is clothed in purple, he is crowned, and he is lifted up a term that can also mean glorified. And Jesus says, in this hour, he will draw all people to himself. John pictures the cross as the victory of God. But this, of course, will be an incredible stumbling block to the Jews. Because the Messiah could not possibly be hung on a tree identified with those who are cursed by God. Don Carson, in his commentary in the Gospel of John, says, if the disciples find Jesus' claims, authority, and his language offensive, what will they think when they see him on the cross? His way of ascending to where he was before. This is the supreme scandal. However offensive the linguistic expression, eating and drinking blood may be, how much more offensive the crucifixion of an alleged Messiah. Now Jesus adds to this words about the Father drawing all who come to him, his ascending to where he was before, the claim of his words being spirit and life-giving words, and this is the last straw for this crowd. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and walked, excuse me, and no longer walked with him. So this is it. This is the moment in Jesus' ministries where the crowds disperse. Many followed him no longer. Now, I mentioned already, these are disciples. This is not a motley crowd of mixed people. These would be people who would identify Jesus is our rabbi. Jesus is even our Messiah. We are following him. But it appears that even with all that they have heard and seen before in Jesus' ministry, there were still non-negotiables with these disciples in following Jesus. There were still reservations. And I believe even in this room this morning, there are presently mixed motives, reservations and non-negotiables for us in following Jesus. And I wonder, what might those be? And I wonder if we're being honest with ourselves and with Jesus about those reservations, questions, and non-negotiables. It's interesting to me, in a time uh, where many people are deconstructing their faith, questioning, you know, so many times what happens is 
people for so long have questions and issues and things, and I don't know if they're afraid to bring them up. I don't know if they're afraid to face them themselves. I don't know what it is, but it feels like sometimes just all of a sudden overnight, just a switch is turned, and all of a sudden, they're gone. I think part of the problem is that all along, you have not been being honest with yourself. You have not been being forthright with Jesus. And possibly you've been coming to scripture, but you aren't asking the hard and difficult questions. Why? If we want to truly experience Jesus for all that he is and all that he claims to be, man, we better get it all out on the table. Bring it all. All of your questions, all of your doubts, all of your frustrations, bring them out. What are your non-negotiables in following Jesus? Be honest with him. He already knows. C.S. Lewis had this line. He said, you know, often when we pray, we, we pray thinking, you know, like we're praying A when we actually want to talk to God about C or B. And he says, you're not fooling anybody. Just pray what is in you. And I feel oftentimes we're coming to the scripture, but we're not being honest about what's actually in us. The questions that we have for the Lord, we're not laying those out before him. Now, I, as I said before, I believe that Jesus taught this difficult sermon on purpose in order to challenge and test people to get them to consider their own heart motivations in following him. And I believe that John recorded this in this way to put the same question to his audience. This is Jesus' hardest sermon yet, and I believe it's put here to reveal where we are in relationship to him. And so here is the question. And almost each of the Gospels have this type of moment in them. Will we be those who dismiss Jesus' seemingly outlandish and confusing talk? Will we be those who just ignore it? We just move on and don't let it hit us deeply? Or will we be those who bring our confusion and questions to Jesus? Will we be those who turn away or those who press further in? Listen, we should pay attention to the fact that it is not just outsiders who can be confused and offended by Jesus. Insiders can and often are too. In fact, if Jesus doesn't ever offend challenge you, or continually change and transform you, you should probably wonder, I should probably wonder if I am reading scripture and understanding it correctly. We should really question whether we are following the real Jesus or just a Jesus who has been made in our image. If our God looks an awful lot like us, thinks the way that we think, speaks the way that we speak, and affirms everything that we affirm, your God looks an awful lot like you do. 
And that's no God to live for. That's no God who can give you the life that you're looking for. It's no God who can actually deeply fulfill you, rescue you from your fears, and give you the deep desires of your heart. This passage clearly shows that Jesus reserves the right to challenge and confuse even disciples. Remember, the context of this sermon that Jesus just preached was that the people were trying to make him king after they ate and were fulfilled, excuse me, were filled by the loaves. But Jesus will not be co-opted for their political agendas and gains, however true and pure they might consider them. Not only that, but he will also not be used to fulfill us apart from giving himself to us. That's what this sermon is all about. The bread we are looking for is not bread at all. It is Jesus and his life-giving presence. The true end that every human longs for is God and his life-giving presence, and he offers that to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, the eternal God has come to bring us into the life-giving relationship that we were created for. But Jesus will not be a means to our ends, however good we might believe our desire aim to be. Jesus will only be the end. Now, people choose to follow Jesus all the time, but over time, as they get to know him and his teaching and understand what he's all about, the costs involved in following him, they realize that he's not a power or person they can control in order to get their will or desire done. Jesus is on his own mission. Jesus is building a different kingdom. Jesus has a different politic. He's on the way to the cross. Or maybe let's put it this way. He's on the way to glory, he tells us. But that is through the cross, through suffering and death, on to resurrection and into glory. And he invites us to follow him in that way. And because of this, many leave off following Jesus. Now, that sounds pretty black and white, right? No? Yes. Okay, cool. I think so too. But I want to add to that this. I think that there is a nuance of believing and trusting in Jesus. There is a black and white aspect to this. There is a glass half full, glass half empty aspect to it. But lest we think believing and following Jesus is clean, it's sterile, it's black and white. If we read on in the text... Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So we've read this. We understand that there are people who are offended by Jesus. They leave off following him. But then there is this other conversation that happens. Jesus turns then to the 12 disciples. 
These are individuals we're very familiar with if we read the New Testament, if we read the Gospels. And listen to the question that Jesus asked them. You do not want to leave too, do you? Now, I don't know how you hear that. I was studying this week, and I was sitting there with Tom Walker, and we were just both talking about, like, hey, how do you read this? Like, what does this sound like to you? Like, is Jesus angry? Is Jesus frustrated? Is he discouraged? Is he heartbroken? What is his tone as we read this? And to me, as I read it, I do hear sadness. I hear a bit of despair in Jesus' voice. Now, I could be wrong, but this is just how I read it. You do not want to leave too, do you? Now, I think what we expect here is something like Peter's declaration at Caesarea Philippi. What we expect here is Peter's declaration like the one in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, though all may forsake you, I will never leave. I expect Peter to say something like, absolutely not, Jesus. We are 100% in. Though all forsake you, still I will follow. Instead, he says something almost non-committal at first. And I want us to think about this. His declaration isn't the most affirming statement. Well, where else are we going to go? I mean, we don't have great options, Jesus. You're the best of what's out there, right? It's like being in a city that only has fast food restaurants. It's like, what's the best of the worst options almost, right? I mean, that's how it comes across. I think what Peter and the 12 are saying is, we still have lots of questions. We are also confused about a lot of what you just said and what you are doing and where this will take us. But even in the midst of all of that, we believe that you are who you say you are and your words bring deep, lasting, satisfying life. I honestly believe that this is what genuine faith looks like. Genuine faith is not someone who has it all figured out and never has doubt, struggle, or questions. Genuine faith, and this can be seen all throughout the biblical narrative. Genuine faith is someone who continually wrestles with God in order to believe. In order to understand more fully, to continue to believe. Let me just say, how could it be anything else in a world like ours? I mean, read the Psalms. How often is the psalmist looking around at the state of the world or the prophets and being like, Lord, you, you said, and this does not look like what you said. God, you are not doing the things that we expect you to be doing. I think about that passage in Isaiah 53. To me, this is, or excuse me, Isaiah 52. This is one of the most astounding statements in all of Scripture where the prophet 
beginning to look at the servant of the Lord who would deliver Israel, says, who would have believed that this was the mighty hand of God? The mighty hand of God that delivered Israel from captivity in Egypt, that conquered Og of Bashan, that conquered, you know, Sihon, the king of such and such a place. I can't remember at the moment. Who would have believed that this was the one who delivered Israel from the Philistines that gave them the land of Israel? Who would have believed because he was despised and rejected? We hid our faces from him. See, Israel was completely and utterly offended and confused by the work of God again and again and again. But those with true faith pressed in. They brought their confusion and questions to the Lord. The faithful wrestle with God. They bring their complaint and confusion to him and wait for his answer and direction. Think about Habakkuk. He, you know, he just unloads emotional vomit on God. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait and I'm going to see how you will respond. And then God says, oh yeah, I'm bringing the Babylonians and they're going to bring judgment and Habakkuk's like, oh, wait a second. No, absolutely not, God. How, how could you possibly do this? The faithful wrestle with God, bringing their complaint and confusion to him and wait for his answer and direction. And this faith, this believing, this trust happens over and over again. It's not just once and for all in one big explosion. So you people out there who have these incredible testimonies where, you know, just light switched on, darkness to light, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the son of his love, we love you. We are a little jealous of you. But I'm going to just speak for the rest of us and say, Faith often looks like continuing to believe again and again and again and again. I'll never forget, we, I had a conversation one time with um, a good friend of mine who did our administration at our church up north. And she, was, she came into the office one day and she was just you know, really wrestling and praying for this girl that she had been discipling into faith. And she's just like, I just, you know, Char, I just want her to, I just want her to believe, you know, I just want her, like, just to get it, you know, to just, like, I keep on thinking, like, we're there, we're there. And I said, oh, Michelle, you don't want her just to believe, you want her to believe again and again and again and again and again. And so you cannot rush this because she's going to have to believe in Jesus next week and next month and next year and the year after that because that's what real faith looks like. I mean, think of Peter's own progression of faith, his fall and restoration, and then think of him at the end of his, or the end of his life when he writes these epistles. There is this progression of faith, genuine faith, trust, believes, keeps on coming to Jesus 
with fears, failures, confusion, disillusionment, anger, desires, and ambitions. We must continually come to Jesus and wrestle to keep on trusting and believing and understanding in order to experience life in his name. Years ago, I was reading, uh, I think it was a Jewish writer, I think it was Abraham Heschel, He's talking about that there are differences in ideas of holiness according to uh, kind of a Greek view and a Jewish view. And he said, in the Greek view, it is the idea almost of sterile uh, cleanness and perfection. But the Jewish idea of holiness has always been one who walks with God. And I love that. And I just keep thinking about even this sermon. What Jesus will not do is he will not give us the faith or the belief to continue on our own, but he will walk hand in hand with us. He will walk with us through all of the trials and difficulties, and that's what he invites us to do, to walk with him. Not to say, okay, God, I've got it all figured out and my belief is sealed up and I'm good and so I can just go. But no, walk with me. And when you hit this situation, you have the opportunity to believe and to trust in me again, afresh and anew. That is what real genuine faith looks like. It's one who walks with God, not one who is perfect. And so, I just want to take a moment and I want to now ask the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. Because this is one of the questions I think that I wrestled with as I walked through this passage. Jesus asked the 12, do you want to leave too? So I want you to just take a moment. Think about your Christian walk. Think about where you are right now and ask yourself that scary question. Do you want to leave? And then I'm going to do something vulnerable. I'm going to share. Yes, I often do. And these are my questions. I mean, Lord, look, look at the state of the world. How can I believe? When we see continual violence and injustice, wars being waged by megalomaniacs, yeah, I want to go. Sometimes we just are tired of following. Do you want to leave? Yeah, Lord, look at the state of the church. Look how it has dragged the reputation of Jesus into the mud. Look how it has gotten into bed with conservative politics. and sought the kingdom of America rather than the kingdom of God. Yeah, I want to go. 
do you want to go? Yeah, I thought following you would make all my difficulties vanish, <laughs> to be honest. But again and again, I come back to Peter's words. Where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of deep, lasting life. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary says this, but Lord, the alternatives are not good. And if the crucified, risen Savior is not God's word to the world, please, anyone give us a more credible word. Look around, he says, test the alternative answers to the world's major questions and to your personal heart longings, and we two will come to Peter's perfectly put questions and affirmation. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of deep, lasting life, and we have come to believe and so to know that you are the Holy One of God. To follow Jesus, to believe in him, doesn't mean we have it all figured out, but it is to say something along the lines of Peter, where else can I go? You have the words of deep, lasting life. This is the faith that Jesus responds to. Jesus says, the words that I speak are spirit and they are life. Or another way to say this is, the words that I speak to you bring the life-giving spirit. As I said, I, I think about this statement to where, you know, do you want to leave to? Jesus, I have so many questions. I still have confusion, but I believe you. And because I believe you, here's an important aspect to this. I'm hanging on your every word. I will not sit in complacency and apathy. I'm going to believe what you say. Your words bring the life-giving spirit. And so I am hanging on your every word. I'm going to pour over your words. I'm going to meditate on them. I'm going to make these the most important words spoken over my life. More than any other institution of academia, any other voice or version of the good life or what will satisfy, I'm going to hang on the words of Jesus. Examining my own life in light of them in order to understand more of who you are and understand more of who I am. And because I believe you, I'm going to lean in more and more to you rather than pull back into apathy and complacency. And as I do, I believe I will experience deep lasting, satisfying life in your name because you alone have the words of eternal life. So I think my, my question this morning is a similar question to Jesus to the disciples. Are you with him? Where are you today? Are you with Jesus? Bring all of your baggage, bring all of your confusion, bring all of your frustration, but here's the question. Are you with him? And if you are with him, that means that you are hanging on his every word. 
That means you're cherishing his word. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, you are meditating on it. You are taking it deep within your person in order to walk in his ways, in order to follow him, in order to experience life in his presence. That's what it looks like to be with him. And as we do this, we will experience life in the name of Jesus. This, again, this is all over the scriptures, but one in which is so just poignant. Remember Paul when he says that we, with unveiled face, beholding the image of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. Now, Jesus puts this all different sorts of way. In Mark's gospel, the disciples come to him with their confusion. He says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. You're going deeper now because you've come to Jesus with your questions, with your confusion. You've pressed in, and now there's a deeper experience. There's a deeper understanding. There's a deeper intimacy. You've sat in the presence of the Lord. There is transformation that is happening. I believe that is what the Spirit of God is inviting us into today. As Jesus has drawn this line in the sand, it's not just to say, yeah, I believe, I'm with you, but it's to say, oh, I am pressing in more and more to you, Jesus. Yes, thank you for this sermon, Jesus, because you were inviting me into deeper intimacy, deeper knowledge, deeper experience of life through your challenge, through your question, am I with you? And now as we close, we have that opportunity not just to do this as we drive home or not just to do this maybe on Thursday when we remember anything that was said this morning, but we have the opportunity to do it right now. I know I say this all the time, but I just love the visual of this table that is right here at the front of this stage. And in my mind's eye, what I see is I see the Lord seated at this table. And I see this invitation, or I hear this invitation to each one of us to come and to have a seat at this table. And to have a real, honest conversation with the Lord. To bring everything that we're carrying and to put it on this table. And to reconnect, to reunite with the Lord in a deep way. To hear Jesus ask that question, are you with me? Are you with me? And in bread, and in the cup, we meet with the Lord. We do business with him. We respond to that invitation to press in deeper, to know him more fully, and to experience life in his name. And so let's do that now as we worship. Let's come to the table and let's bring those desires and confusions, 
frustrations, our non-negotiables, let's bring all of that to the table and let's do business with the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would meet us here at this table, and that you would bring us into a deeper commitment to believe and to trust anew in the person of Jesus. Not just to be satisfied in ourselves, but to be satisfied specifically by you. Lord, meet us here. Amen.